0: Researcher's night is a Europe-wide event organised with support from the European Union. Reading University was one of four institutions in the UK opening its doors and inviting everyone to find out about its research. The centrepiece of a full day of workshops and talks was a debate discussing the question of how many languages should be spoken in today's society We join Esther Myers of the University's History Department to introduce and chair the debate Cultural Hegemony versus Linguistic Diversity. Do we really need to learn foreign languages?
1: When we first started talking about organising researchers' night at Reading, we quickly decided we wanted to finish off with a debate and we wanted to finish off with the topic of language. Um, Not least because quite a few of us are, are, are other non-native language speakers, but also of course because language is so topical and language is at the heart of the um, research um, theme that is hosting researchers' night today and and this um, debate in particular, that is language, text and power. And language is always in the news, as we all know. Just just last week um, the Foreign Office expressed its concern that its staff and trainees no longer have the language skills necessary, and um, David Cameron, of course, in that same week announced that people might lose their benefits if they don't learn English. Um, Those are two very different sides of the same coin, obviously. Um, But language also has a a huge number of other implications as well. We claim the English don't speak any other languages, yet we're Reading, the town where over 150 different languages are being spoken at the Reading schools. Um, there are um, issues over text language, work jargon, and um, languages more than just do you speak German, did you take French in school. And there are a range of um, implications as well for the issues of language cultural political social but economic also so the question we want to address that's at the heart of this debate tonight is how many languages can we afford and it will be up to our um, panelists to interpret this in whichever way they like and the idea is not so much to agree or disagree with um the importance of language, but especially to sort of get a bit further, because I think most people will agree that having language skills is very important and very necessary. Now our speakers tonight are, first of all, Professor Kustwitz, who is the head of Classics as well as the head of the research theme, Language, Text and Power, which is hosting this um, debate and he is a specialist of Latin language and literature and epigraphy of the Roman Republic. Our second speaker will be Dr. Daniela Lepena from the Italian department um, who works on Italian poetry and is particularly interested in for- forms of language within this. Then we have a third speaker to whom we were particularly grateful, our only outside speaker tonight, Dr. William Crawley, who is a senior fellow at the Institute of Commonwealth Studies um, at the University of London, and he was a broadcaster and an editor in the BBC World Service for 24 years and he was head of the BBC Eastern Service for a long time as well and is a specialist in South Asia. And lastly, um, there is Professor Mark Pagel, who is Professor of Evolutionary Biology in the School of Biological Sciences, particularly interested in linguistic evolution. And now, the format of this debate is as follows. Every um, speaker gets 10 minutes, and will go in the order um, in which I've introduced them. And they will say what they want to say about this particular topic, and it will be very diverse. After that um, we will open the floor to questions to comments so without any further ado I would like to invite our first speaker to say his piece Thank
2: you very much Esther. Um, I'd like to approach the question how many languages can we afford with um, I'll start with a personal anecdote I think that that's always a smart thing to do when I started studying classics reading Latin and Greek, Philology, I felt I could afford four languages, German, English, Ancient Greek and Latin. So naturally my first module was on Latin love poetry and it turned out that a really important book on that subject was written in French. I saw my professor and told him I can't read this and his uh, his response was, no problem, here's a French dictionary, get on with it. often ask myself, um, over the last few years, what would happen if I did this in a classroom here. The, the way I see this is, uh, if I hadn't got my head around this French publication, there would have been a lack of knowledge on my side. Um, they, in the long run, there would have been a lack of capability and probably a lack of value and competitiveness in myself <clears throat> as a student. Now. Classics is one of those subjects where you still need to know quite a few languages because if you go to an international event um, you will rarely experience a situation which English is the only language spoken by by all participants. That may be unusual in academia. I'm fully aware there are quite a few disciplines out there where English is the only language spoken regardless of where you are. But I think Classics, in a way, is also um, actually quite a realistic reflection of what is going on uh, in the real world. Just to give you an example of how perverse this actually can seem to um, to to um, academics and, and students in um in in other countries well it seems pretty obvious that you study for example the subject of english literature in english reading english texts and discussing about this in english and reading about it in english specialist publications so how about studying english literature exclusively in german translation exclusively based on german research it feels Something is wrong about that. Even to me, as a native speaker of German, it somehow feels wrong. When we look at what we now would prefer to call Italy, so the Apennine Peninsula in the fifth century BC, um, I conducted a quick count um, this morning. There were um, about 21, 22 languages spoken just on that one peninsula. One of them was Latin and if you enjoy that I'll just quickly read out the other ones so I haven't done this in, in vain. Lepontic, Gaulish, Rhaetic, um, Venetic, Ligurian, Etruscan, Umbran, North Piscine, South Piscine, Feliscan, Sabine, Vestinian, Iquian, Polygnian, Marocinian, Marcian, Volscian, Oscan, Mesapic, Greek, Sicanian, and Sicil. About two of them survive One of them in a modified version in the Romance languages, if we see that as survival of Latin, and the other one being Greek. So a question one might ask a second year undergraduate at this point, how come Latin survives and Etruscan dies? How come people in the Romance speaking world speak Romance and not a dialect based on Etruscan? It's a very difficult, highly speculative question To answer, but I could give you another example in which it's fairly obvious why um, the situation has developed as it has. Why don't we speak Punic? I won't bore you with the history of the Punic Wars now, even though I really should, just to feel better myself. But obviously, here we had a Clash of cultures, of um, sort of economic competitors at some point, and the result: if Hannibal had been a smarter, um, um, a, a smarter person, could have been rather different. The, the history, the linguistic reality of Europe, could have been rather different if that elephant episode had worked out differently. <laughs> so essentially, what we see here is: Punic didn't extend to Europe, but Latin moved into. North Africa. So as a result of warfare, of expansionism, we may even call it imperialism if you like, that has helped to shape something in the European linguistic landscape. The, the factors that seem to have driven the development, in my view, um, are maybe three. At what time did the Romans encounter their opponents? Um, To what extent was that area colonised and sort of became part of the Italian mainland? And how did the inhabitants, the original populace, respond to that act of aggression or expansion? So what we see when looking at the linguistic reality of the ancient world, focusing on on the Romans and the development and the spread of the Latin languages, um, we see areas that fairly quickly become monolingual. And we see areas in which Latin never really catches on. The Greek East... Well, Latin seems to be the language of the army, of the administration, the language you put on imperial inscriptions, but it's not the language that would um, be used in everyday communication. Now, the later development of Latin, in my view, um, goes to prove a single language across a vast territory is actually something that can remain sustainable. I would argue the example of Latin and sort of the disappearance of Latin has shown that it's not sustainable. And you might wonder if there are parallels to be drawn to modern languages. What about the diverse development of the world Spanishes or the world Englishes? Is that sort of already the first step towards the disappearance of the English language? to introduce this um, with the question how many languages can we afford i find it very hard um, to quantify the cost of multilingual life in antiquity i don't think we have the sources to make any informed um, suggestion here but i think if we don't just think in economic terms history goes to prove at least in europe at least in that one time period that um, the idea of um, universal monolingualism, A, would have to be forced upon humankind and is of non-durable, non-lasting nature. And I think the study of a dead language as as a paradigm also shows um, that there are just too many factors beyond the control of language policy um, that in fact drive the development of a living language. It's a complex system in motion um, that is practically impossible to stabilize. I would make the point, just try this out for the debate, um, that a lingua franca is eventually said to die out. So the question is not how many languages can we afford, I'd prefer the question how many languages can't we afford.
1: We come on to our next speaker,
3: Daniela Lepena. I will also start by Uh, illustrating my my research and how I um, embarked on my own journey of bilingualism. I uh, came to Reading to write a PhD on a poet, uh, Amelia Rosselli, she was born in in Paris, Uh, she was the daughter Mm -hmm. of an um, anti-fascist fighter and thinker who was murdered in Paris. She was the daughter of a labor English labor activist, Marion Cave. Marion Cave was born a few miles away from Reading, as it happens. And of course, her main language, the language of the father, was Italian. Her poetry um, is the result of the meshing of these three languages: the French of uh, uh, that was used of the uh, people that murdered her father, the Italian of her fatherland. And the English of her mother. Um, in order to make sense of this difficult poetry that doesn't have, um, doesn't win audiences that are monolingual, I had to study uh, the theory and the practice of bilingualism. And in order to prepare for this debate, I decided to turn around the question and see what does monolingualism mean. And I encountered three definitions that um, appear and come up. Uh, in public debate. The first representation is that monolingualism is considered the normal situation or the baseline against which uh, bilingualism multilingualism have to be justified and are set as the exception. The second representation is of monolingualism as a limitation on cognitive, communicative, social and vocational aspirations. And the third, the most critical one, and the one that actually I find most you know, interesting to a certain extent is that monolingualism is a pathological state. Uh, some uh, linguists call it monoglottitis, and uh, and they basically uh, consider it as a kind of disease with symptoms which manifest, unfortunately, in uh, misguided educational, social language policies. Now. When I tried to find a body of work that dealt with monolingualism, I found myself contemplating a dearth of, of studies. I found only one book that was entitled Monolingualism. Only one. So something which is taken for granted does not tend to have a literature on it, describing it and examining it. So some linguists claim that many speakers of a powerful a uh, language of wider communication such as english take for granted and monolingualism is a normal state of affairs but then other linguists are there to say that monolingualism is in fact uh, a word a simple word that covers a very complex continuum uh, even a monolingual speaker of english is in fact Uh, a master of very many wide varieties of English that he uses or she uses according to the context in which his message is produced, what kind of message he or she intends to send out, and who he's trying or she's trying to address. Um, There is a body of literature that frames uh, monolingualism as consisting a lack of skills, and all these um, linguists and and, uh, specialists mention, Uh, the benefits that learning a second, a third, a fourth language uh, brings to uh, the speaker and the community at large. And these benefits are essentially enrichment, that can be cultural and intellectual, economic, relating to economic prosperity of the country, equality, because knowing a language, especially if you move to to a different country because of political circumstances, uh, guarantees you to access social justice and overcoming disadvantage, and also external benefits relating to the country's ability and role in, uh, you know, position in the world. Bilingualism is credited with assisting and furnishing the uh, the person that has disability with great cognitive dexterity and symbolic flexibility. What do I mean by cognitive dexterity? A bilingual person, a trilingual, multilingual person, and by here by bilingual person I mean not only the person that uh, knows two or more languages to a near native ability, but also the person that is engaging in learning languages. And by the way, let me just spell it out, it's a lifelong uh, learning commitment, as I clearly, you know, demonstrate <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> here. Well, what is this cognitive dexterity? It's to look at grammar as a, a set of exciting possibilities, rather than a frightening uh, range of dry prescriptive rules. Uh, and I see this every day, and I experienced it reading uh, the poetry of Amelia Rosselli, but reading also uh, the English, if we want to call it that way, of Finnegan's Wake, um, uh, reading Samuel Beckett. I mean, Joyce Beckett, who is a home here at Reading, were great boardsmiths and perhaps also because they learned, they spoke other languages. One could argue, and it has been argued, that the English-speaking tendency to view monolingualism as the norm has both individual and societal costs. Um, monolingual children, is often said, miss out on the opportunity to develop an early appreciation of language and the cognitive and linguistic flexibility referred to the, in the, the bilingualism literature. The benign explanation as to why, especially English-speaking uh, countries, Consider language learning uh, in, you know, don't value language learning as much as other countries, is that monolinguals just don't see the benefits. So let me just take you to uh, a different part of the world where English is spoken. Uh, And I wish to read out another quote from the Australian Linguistic Society. This was um, uh, a, a report published in 1981 when the white Australian policy was. Uh, had been scrapped only a few years before. It appears to be widely believed in Australia that foreign languages are essentially unlearnable to normal people and that Australians have a special innate anti-talent for learning them. <laughs> 1981. Then the Australian Minister for Immigration, the late Mr. Al grasby made the same point somewhat more graphically. And he expressed himself as saying, Australian born suffers a mutation of the gene so that he, sick, not she, can never adequately learn a second language. For an Australian to have a second language is some kind of treason. <laughs> okay, so the third way, and I'm leading to this, way of representing monolingualism is the, is, uh, the one that looks at it as a pathology, as glotto uh, you know, monoglottitis. Um, this view tends to essentially attack four common myths that are particularly uh, entrenched um, in uh, uh, in societies that have the benefit uh, of speaking the language of domination uh, that that has won the battle against the others and, and the other languages. Um, monolingualism is normal, is desirable, sufficient for communication, and inevitable at both societal and the individual level. But one could argue, I'm Italian, I can give you hundreds of examples of this, uh, that, a social const- uh, that a societal level monolingualism is a social construction that has been used to marginalise various groups of people. Those who do not happen to speak the dominant language or who speak varieties which are not socially acceptable. Well, now, can we look now at the cost of multilingualism? Uh, This event has been funded by the European Union. We know that the European Union is formed by 27 27 member states, 23 languages, three official languages. The translation costs of most of the documents that circulate in the European Union amounts of 300 million euros per year. The language costs bill total, including interpretation, the maintenance of the equipment, Amounts to one billion euros. The European budget is 120 billions. So, how much money per, per how much you know how, how many euros per person per year? Well, it comes to a convenient two euros per year. Not even it doesn't even buy a pint, you know, <laughs> of uh, of lager in a in a in a in a, 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 a pub. So. Language diversity is enshrined in a charter of the European Union. It is one of the accepted costs of democracy. Now, uh, I will now pref- paraphrase one sentence from one of my favourite educationalists, Derek uh, Bok. Uh, he, he says, do you think that education is expensive? Well, then try ignorance. And what I say is, do you think that multilingualism is expensive? Then try monolingualism and try all the things that come with it usually. Monoethnicism, monoreligion, monoideology and monochromatism. Just do not assume again that it's going to be just your language, it's going to be picked up as the language of the majority.
1: All right, we come to our third speaker, Dr William Crawley.
4: Thank you very much for this invitation to speak in an academic environment where idealism can be made real very easily and should be made real. I think it was the historian A.J.P. Taylor who said that it was impossible for anyone to write a history of the Habsburg Empire unless he could read or speak at least 14 languages. Mm. I don't know that he did himself, he probably did. Uh, When I was a student in Cambridge 50 years ago, uh, there was a professor of philosophy who used to advise one of his students uh, to read an important Chinese text, which unfortunately, unfortunately wasn't available in English. He said there's a very good Polish translation. (laughs) One of my former BBC World Service colleagues, the late Anatole Goldberg, was completely at ease giving or conducting an interview in any one of six languages. I think it's probably more common to find polyglot skills among the smaller European nationalities than in Britain or France. Germany, with its great tradition of scholarship, may be an exception. There was an assumption in business and academic circles after 1989 that with the opening up of Eastern Europe and German reunification, German, along with English, would become the lingua franca of Europe. This does not seem to have happened, but the apparent apparent diminishing of German teaching in British schools is surely a retrograde step. It's not at all unusual for an educated Indian to speak four or five languages fluently. Why is it not practical or realistic for native English speakers to emulate them? There may be drawbacks. Time and energy for the study of languages are limited. There used to be a cheap jibe about an accomplished linguist that so-and-so speaks six or more languages and has nothing to say in any of them. (laughs) But I doubt that that was ever true, much more likely that he or she has a great deal more to say that is informed by a much wider cultural perspective than those of us who have to depend on translations or interpreters, as we all do to a greater or lesser extent. Having spent a career in the media, I'm not going to decry the work of mediators. I know they perform a valuable role. My own BBC experience involved at various times writing for broadcasting in English or translation in up to 40 languages. My colleagues and I were always aware Of the importance of the links generated by the BBC World Service with academic and journalistic regional and linguistic expertise and we drew on this expertise regularly both for journalistic editorial and management purposes. Transnational broadcasting depends both on national and international sources and partnerships all subject to potential biases and multiple interpretation. BBC World Service practice has always been to engage staff whose mother tongue is the language in which they are asked to broadcast. More of a a recruitment policies aim to ensure that broadcasters should be fully conversant with changes and current usage in their mother tongue. There used to be a primary emphasis on an ability to translate accurately from a text prepared in English, but in the past two decades, there has been as great a value attached to journalistic and broadcasting skills required for generating news and current affairs reports and analysis. In this, there is typically no English language intermediary. The BBC justifies this being accepted, aims to justify this being accepted as a British broadcasting station, communicating a narrative and mediating discussion in accordance with its own editorial standards of fairness and objectivity. By contrast, some other major international broadcasters, China for example, would not let non-Chinese nationals in front of the microphone or camera. Foreign staff were hired to train and supervise linguistic standards, but Chinese nationals were trained to a high level of competence in foreign languages, and they did most of the broadcasting. In many ways, this is admirable and enviable. It shows a commitment to teaching and studying foreign languages that, in the number of students and resources devoted to it, dwarfs that of British educational institutions. In 1981, when the BBC prepared to set up a radio service in the Pashto language for Afghanistan, there was no academic post for the study of Pashto in a British university. There was a post in a German university, which at that time was held by a British scholar who was able to provide advice. But the BBC looked principally to Pakistan for substantial assistance in setting linguistic standards. Since the Second World War, the... Three major major committees have looked at the issues of teaching foreign languages in Britain. The Scarborough Committee in 1947 laid the foundation for a generation of British Oriental Languages scholarship after the war. The Hayter Committee in 1959 gave a big boost to area studies. I personally benefited from that with a scholarship that will be envy of research students today. And Sir Peter Parker's report, Speaking for the Future, 1986, The Parker Committee was looking at the use of foreign languages for business and international communication in public life. Others in this hall were probably able to say better what the legacy of Parker has been, and I'm sure there were many positive things, I know there were many positive things. One outcome was the appointment of a committee to review the issues on an ongoing basis. I was a BBC representative on, on that group. I missed its first meeting because I was out of the country, before the second meeting I had a letter from a civil service mandarin saying that the committee had been abolished. No wonder that Sir Peter Parker, talking about it soon afterwards, had felt isolated in Whitehall when he was preparing his report. It's now 26 years since he reported, and regrettably, the financial climate is hardly conducive to a successor. Uh, to conclude, I'd just like to make one. Uh, uh, polemical point it's often struck me traveling on behalf of the BBC to parts of South Asia staying in a hotel in Dhaka in Bangladesh or or, or in Delhi uh, you could watch German or Italian or French TV um, in in your hotel room uh, in ways that was at the time completely impossible in London Uh, here we are part of this big European project every other country in Europe can watch BBC programs we have no support, there's no, uh, because people, the English assume not to speak any other foreign language, and even though subtitling is a very easy and quite cheap technology now, there is no political support either uh, or, or, or movement to uh, make these some, some of the magnificent free-to-air programmes available to British audiences, uh, as it should be. There's the whole image of European television in this country is that of Eurotrash, which is a very misleading one. We may look back with nostalgia to a time when Latin was lingua franca for legal no, disputation and intellectual debate. Uh, I, I recall the inherent absurdity of conversation, which is recorded in a memoir, uh, the, the book by the British scholar C.H. Firth, long out of print, uh, Notes on Macaulay's History of England, which recorded um, a meeting between the great German historian Leopold von Ranke and uh, and Macaulay. And the only language they had in common was French, which they both spoke extremely badly, (laughs) and neither could understand the other. So they ended up, uh, Macaulay speaking very fast and typically very loudly in English, and uh, Ranke speaking uh, also loudly in German, and neither of them understanding each other. Uh, and uh, maybe they should have talked in Latin, which I'm sure they both knew. But my, my only uh, conclude, my concluding point is that I believe that the reciprocal learning of languages is basically a cultural courtesy, that learning languages broadens cultural horizons, open doors to conversation and communication, and is an essential element of a globalising world. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. We come to our last speaker, Professor Mark Pagel.
5: Thank you, Esther. I, I want to approach this question tonight um, from from sort of two perspectives, and I'll, I'll I'll try to be brief so that we get through this in ten minutes or so, and then we can argue about these things um, happily later on. Now, let's take up this question of: um, Do we really need to learn foreign languages? And let's balance that against the sort of opposite: Is, is multilingualism um, a waste of time and money? And, Let's, let's take this up from two perspectives. One's a sort of narrow perspective, the other's a very broad one. And we can think of these narrow and broad perspectives as um, sort of short and long term views. So if we take the narrow perspective and the short term view and we ask, is it useful for people to learn foreign languages? I mean, the answer is overwhelmingly yes. And, you know, some of you are children, some of you have children, and some of you, I'm sorry to say, look as if you might have grandchildren. And what I should tell you is that. If you're any of those three roles, um, you should be encouraging the young people in your life to to learn as many languages as they can. Um, In this very difficult and competitive world that's only going to become more difficult and more competitive, you don't want to limit your children's um, economic opportunities. And it's just obvious that if you want to grow up and work in Europe, you want to work in the Middle East, you want to work in China or India, the really big population and growth centers of the world, over the next 30, 50, 100 years. It will be of enormous benefit to you to learn one of those languages. <clears throat> so that, that's just obvious, and we shouldn't we shouldn't argue about that. But even even if that weren't the case, um, I think we can still make a case for learning languages. And I think Daniela talked about this a little bit. Is it simply good for your brain to learn? languages. Um, There's lots and lots of research, but I think we just know it's common sense that a whole lot of mental agility comes from learning languages, although I think we have to stack that against the possibility that it might be equally good for your brain um, to learn mathematics or to do brain teasers or crosswords. I don't know, but at least we know that learning a language is, is good for your brain. So that's the narrow and short-term view. I mean, at this moment in time, you know, in our history, learning a foreign language is obviously uh, a very, very good thing to do. But let's now take up the more difficult and contentious view, which is a a much broader view, and it's really a long-term view. And this is the issue of we might define multilingualism as a belief that it's not only okay, but it's justified Uh, to preserve declining languages, minority languages, um, by compelling people to learn them, especially young people. Now, this is going on, you know, an hour and a half's drive from here, west of here, just across the Severn Bridge, and it's going on a little bit further to the west, across the Irish Sea, and it's going on in lots of other parts of the world. And I would argue that compelling people to learn minority languages that are in decline, and we can argue about what those might be or whether we can even recognize them, is not only a waste of time and money, and this will be a very unpopular view to many people, but it actually could be considered harmful to young people. And the reason I say that is that for many young people being compelled to learn a minority or declining language is a way of restricting their economic opportunities in life and narrowing their outlook. And I'd I'd go on further to say that these nations and regions that do this sow the seeds of their own decline by reducing the size of the job pool of people that they can pull from. So for example, in many areas of the world in which young people are compelled to learn minority languages, People who work in the public service in those languages, who might come in from outside, in our case, from other parts of the European Union, are also compelled to learn those languages. And so many people, it's just not worth the trouble to do that. And so these nations pull on an ever declining pool of people to fill those jobs. And this is really a recipe for decay. And so I think the key issue here is is compulsion. Uh, No one should read me to believe that I am opposed these languages, or I'm opposed to people learning these languages, but the idea that young children might be compelled to learn them um, is, I think, could, could even be seen in some cases as harmful. Also, I think in, in some cases we have to consider the possibility, I don't know if this is true, but we have to consider the possibility that, that one of the reasons, one of the motivations for this compulsion is to serve narrow nationalistic political interests on the part of a few who, who wish to stay in power with a local docile electorate. Okay, now, the, the obvious objection to that view and the objection that many of you are probably feeling and, and maybe even feel a little bit of anger about is that, that, that there is some sort of cultural hegemony or imperialism about this, but I don't think that's the view at all. One saying that from the standpoint of an individual's best opportunities in life, what's the best thing for that? And I can tell you that if I had a child growing up in one of these areas, I would want them to learn some other language other than the minority one, and I wouldn't want them to be compelled to learn that minority language. Now, the obvious objection, though, is that somehow we all have this belief that different languages preserve unique cultures. And even more powerfully, we have this belief that different languages preserve unique styles of thought around the world. And, you know, this is this old idea that, oh, the the Eskimo or more politically correct term these days is Inuit peoples of North America have 48 words for snow, and that there are some cultures in the world that don't have words for red, and so on. And these are unique styles of thought. Well, this is muddled in the extreme. It's certainly the case that culture is intertwined, and in many ways, almost inextricably, not inextricably, but almost inextricably, with language, in the sense that spoken and written and sung aspects of culture are sometimes most favorably presented in the language in which they were originally composed or written or spoken. There's just no doubt about that. And our language is one of the most intimate things we have. For most of it, it's it's the voice of our inner consciousness. It's the voice of our emotions and our thoughts and our memories. And it's the last thing we would want to give up. But we have to ask ourselves, is this a reason to compel people to learn these languages? And I would suggest it's not, that if these aspects of culture are valuable enough to individuals, they will wish to learn them without being compelled to do so. And to take up the second aspect of that objection, that languages somehow preserve unique styles of thought, this is a dangerous form of muddled thinking. Um, Language is not equivalent to thought. You think in your language, most of you, but language is not equivalent to thought. And a very simple thought experiment will show you why. I mean, it's really patronizing to think otherwise, and here's why. Here's your thought experiment. This thought experiment is, imagine I'm going to randomly reassign every culture on Earth a different language, and I'm going to replay the tape of cultural evolution. Do I really believe that those cultures would somehow come out different, or they couldn't have the thoughts or the artifacts or the belief systems that they have? Absolutely not. Now, I'm going to assert that, and you may not believe it, but let's, let's, let's take this a little bit closer to home. If language is equivalent to thought, here's a very simple phrase that you wouldn't be able to understand. This is a lovely one that's used in computer science. Um, uh, um, let me see if I can read this to you. Um, time flies like an arrow. Fruit flies like bananas. Now, if you tell that to any computer, it will be muddled because computers, their language is their thought. But all of you, with your great mental agility, easily work out the two different forms of fly there and like. And we can just look at any newspaper. uh, uh, Last November I was having to do this for a a lecture I was giving, and one day in the Daily Telegraph there was a wonderful headline that said... Um, Residents help murder police. Now, if language were thought, you'd have completely the wrong idea about the residents who lived in this local area. Or some of you might be students. Here's one that older people like to say. Students are revolting. Well, at that time, the students were in revolt because the government had just raised the uh, tuition fee. So language is not equivalent to thought. And so we shouldn't think that by losing minority languages, we are losing unique styles of thinking around the world and it's patronizing to think otherwise now it's not to say that translation is an easy subject, translation is an extraordinarily difficult subject alright so another reason though that we should be aware that compelling people to learn minority languages that are in decline (coughs) is that there is a evolutionary sort of inevitability about the fact that Our world, whether we like it or not, and you shouldn't take me to be advocating this point of view, rather reporting to you what's happening, whether we like it or not, it is simply inevitable that the world on its own is moving towards greater and greater and greater linguistic homogeneity. There are about 7,000 languages currently spoken around the world, and those 7,000 languages um, are spread out around the world and amongst its speakers, but the number of speakers that speak those languages is not spread out very uniformly. Of those 7,000 languages, about 10 to 20 of them, 10, 11, 12 of them, account for 40% of all of the speakers on Earth. The rest of them are spoken by a relatively small number of people, and as we get up to around 50 or 70 or 80th language or so out of those 7,000, we're getting down to really rather small numbers indeed. Now, in any evolutionary system in which you've got a whole lot of functionally equivalent traits, all of these languages on earth are equally sophisticated, they're equally good at expressing human emotions and human logic. There is no language that's better than any other. It is simply inevitable that they were, over long periods of time, moved to being simply one of those dominating. Now don't take me as advocating that position. I'm someone who when I travel around the world I take great delight in the different languages, but I'm telling you that it is inevitable that we are moving towards greater linguistic homogeneity. And we all know that. Looking around this room I see that most of you are old enough to remember traveling around other parts of Europe twenty, maybe thirty or more years ago, and at that time you know that you had to speak the local languages or you couldn't get around. But it's almost It's almost sad now. There's this frisson of traveling is lost because when we travel around much of Europe anyway, we're often confronted by people that when we speak to them in their language, they turn around and say to us, well, stop speaking to me in French or Italian or Greek because my English is much better than your Italian, (laughs) French, and so on. And I can tell you I was once traveling in a remote region of Africa and I spoke to a local man in some Swahili that I knew and he stopped me and said, my English is better than your Swahili. And it was. (laughs) Uh, So I think we have to realize that trying to oppose by compulsion the decline of minority languages, sad as that might be for many of us, is a little bit like King Canute trying to hold back the waves. And I want to tell you that that story makes one of my points about translation, right? Because King Canute, of course, was a Dane And that story probably was originally told in Danish. I think it was first written down, Peter will know, in Latin, but I'm telling it to you in English. And I think you probably understand that story in English rather well. Well, let me just finish on um, a facetious and lighthearted tone. Um, um, And that's that, you know, in this sort of interconnected world in which we live, and it's interconnected in a way that is absolutely unprecedented. and, And our connectedness around the world is 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 growing at an extraordinarily rapid rate we can see that it's simply the case that languages are going to gobble each other up that interconnectedness is growing every day it's something that in our lifetimes is just taking our breath away but It's also the case in a world that's interconnected, that you will be bumping into people all of the time who speak different languages from you, and this can lead to dangerous circumstances. And I say this somewhat facetiously, but just a couple of weeks ago I was traveling to Vienna on Austrian Airlines, and I was sitting by the emergency exit on the Mm -hmm. aircraft. And you know how now when you sit by the emergency exit on an aircraft, the stewards or stewardesses have to come up to you and and find out whether you know how to use the emergency exit because there's some regulation that says you need to be able to open that thing so we can all get off the plane if it crashes. So this Austrian airline stewardess came up to me and she started speaking to me in English very nicely and she said to me, do you know how to work the emergency exit? And I looked at her and I said, no. And she looked at me and she smiled and she said, perfect. And she turned around and walked away. Now, I was a little bit alarmed by this because I thought she was going to say to me, You better learn. And the Austrian man sitting next to me, whose English was better than her English, looked at me with some alarm on his face. So I'll just finish there by saying it actually matters what we say to each other in an interconnected world. We're going to all have to learn somehow to communicate with each other uh, accurately, indeed. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Well we have had four very different yet very, um, it it, it gives a very good range of of ideas on on how to interpret these and these different issues, so I'd like to open the floor for questions and comments.
6: Hi, thank you. My name's Emma. Um, I want to pick up on your point about minority languages and compulsion. uh, and why I, I am one of the people sitting here quite angry about what you're saying. Um, we're about to have a child, and my boyfriend here is Irish and um, learned Irish Gaelic at school. And even though our child's going to be brought up in Britain, we think it's very, very important that as much as possible we expose her to um, Gaelic, and the, as well as actually to Spanish, which is my um, other language. Um, and the reasons for these are, first of all, I mean you made the point... Early on, that learning a language, learning a second language, is good for the brain, and that would apply for any language, anyway, whether it's a minority language or a majority language. Second, and uh, what's most important to me is the um, language is such um, an essential part of your identity. It's part of who you are, and your understanding of yourself as a person, and your background, and your history. If it's uh, that, if you don't have at least some knowledge of um, your own um, nation's language, then you don't have a full understanding of who you are as a person. I think part of Britain's problem is um, because English is such an international language, we don't have our own um, identity through our language, as most other countries do. Um, Another reason also is you say, well, maybe when um, the child's older, they'll want to learn the language themselves, and you say that you wouldn't mind if they did. Well, most linguistic research shows that by the time they get to teenagers or adults, they wouldn't be able to learn the language um, very fluently anyway. So you have to teach them from a young age in order for them to have any possibility of um, being able to um, speak the language well. And also, if you've exposed them to languages and they, from a young age, know that they can learn languages, then as they get older, they'll be more confident in learning other languages. Maybe they'll choose to learn Chinese or Arabic or any of the other um, uh, languages that that you yourself consider useful. So um, I I think it's really, really important that um, uh, minority languages do carry on um, being taught.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. I think it might be an idea if we let a few people of the audience speak and then we will ask the entire panel to respond rather than create a a dialogue, if that's okay with everyone.
0: I'm interested um, in what the panel would uh, think is uh, the trajectory that English, as the prime candidate for uh, Lingua Franca uh, these days, What trajectory English is headed on? um, How will English mutate and uh, change through being an international language? It already has strong independent dialects in America, uh, Australia and India. Um, And so the the advent of the internet means that there is a far greater (coughs) mixing of all languages together in the, the slang used as a ways as a way of quick easy communication mm-hmm. worldwide how, how do we think do we um, I'm particularly interested <coughs> in whether you think that uh, English will fragment eventually as Latin did um, into al- although uh, yes yeah, basically what, what's going to happen next
1: <laughs> okay if maybe we can take a third question over there and then we will ask the um, the panel to respond
7: um, I mean, everyone thinks they can speak English now, y- as you say, you go to wherever in Africa and they, they supposedly speak better English than you do the local language, but in fact, what's happening is that, yes, they can speak a smattering of English, but they're speaking it very badly. I mean, look at signposts in, you know, shops where they put things up in English and they get it wrong, they spell things wrong, they get the idiom wrong. And I was just thinking, is that a little bit what happens at the end of the Roman Empire, where obviously Greek is the, koine, is, is the language of the common people, and slowly you're getting this bastardization, and Greek, is, as it were, is um, becoming less fruitful, less rich as a language. And isn't there a real fear that that's going to happen to the English language as more and more people purport to speak it? It's going to be spoken less well. So I was just sort of musing a little bit on what what Peter was saying yeah. in his in his um, first introduction.
3: Can I, can I start from the um, the last comment? I I sympathise first of all because I think that I speak English badly, but also because as a, as a main as a native speaker of Italian, I feel. Oh uh, I mean, I really feel angry when I see Macchiato spelt wrongly Paninis with double n you know it's it's just one of those things that really gets me um you you say that um non native speakers of english speak sometimes speak English badly but as a as a as a teacher uh in an English university, I sometimes felt uh, you know feel that I play the role of uh, an academician or the Academie Francaise, when I deal with uh, mistakes uh, made by English native speakers, you know, the most recurrent one, and I now give up, is, to, you know, let my student, English students understand the difference between its as subject <laughs> apostrophe S. And it's spelled in the same way, which they consider to be a possessive pronoun. Then something clicked in my brain, and it was time to Latin. They think it's genitive, okay? It belongs to it, so it's with apostrophe, okay? But it, of course, it's wrong. So where is this English going? Well, <laughs> God only knows, to be honest. <laughs> but it's, it's um, of course the most. Um, Widely spoken variety of English in the world is the English I speak, not the English you speak. That's for sure. <laughs> so get on with it. And I also for the, the the question of minority languages, I, I mean, I see your point, and I entirely agree. Um, my my country, um, in my country, there are minority languages that are recognized and protected um, by law. Um, German, Greek, Sardinian, I mean there are lots of varieties actually of um, languages that are considered language in their own right and I, I, um, I, was, I, I admit my ignorance, I didn't know that Irish is one of the 23 languages that are used in the European Union. On the subject of compulsion uh, of forcing somebody to actually learn a language, that is something that I I, I I feel I agree with, with Mark. I mean, a compulsion is something that I don't like as a person because I have a, pers- a particular, I mean, as an Italian national, I feel, uh, uh, and an anti-fascist one, of course, <coughs> I feel uh, very much against compulsion. But when children, I mean, I have a child. Uh, my husband is a, is a New Zealander. We speak English in, uh, in the household. Um, and I feel for Olivia that you know, she doesn't speak Italian very well, but of course she will pick up the language eventually. And she, she tries to speak the language, and she will eventually do it. But, so I understand the sense of, uh, of seeing language as a flash of, of, uh, of, uh, of the spirit of a, of a nation, of uh, a way of, uh, I don't know, uh, to learn this to be initiated. A, in a cult to a culture, so that should be protected and cherished, that's for sure. Peter,
2: um, I would like to make the case that the third contribution is actually the answer to the second one. Um, and the way you phrased this was really interesting, actually, because you suggested that um, there's sort of a correct way of using english and the other ones um you, you used a wo- phrase like um to 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 um speak it as in um they don't properly and i think that's actually an interesting way of seeing it because it's not reflecting linguistic reality um in, in this panel you encounter um various ways of um mm-hmm. speaking the english language you might find some of them more agreeable um, than others, but this is linguistic reality. And I think um, that this means that the English language, if, whether you want to see it as sort of one giant unit or something that has already started to, to crumble away and to, to fall apart, um, will eventually lead to something new. I would be very surprised if sort of a, any kind of variety would sort of be the, the final word and it, it never changes again whether you like it or not. But it's, it's very, very problematic, I find, as a linguist, to connect that to labels that make um, sort of statements and judgments of value as in one is superior to the other. You, um, because what are we debating? Are we debating taste? Or are we debating the functionality of a language? It's very, very problematic. Um, If if we see language as um, a system for communication, well, this one works, (laughs) most of the time, anyway. Um, So I, I think that eventually, English will probably indeed face the grim fate of Latin. But the world moves on, and some beautiful languages came out of the aftermath of, of, of Latin, yes, so um, maybe there are worse things than f- for the English language to, to happen than to, to disappear eventually. If it stays, that's <laughs> fine too, of course. I'm not, I'm, we I am like not. I, I, I don't want that to, to make that a prophecy.
4: <laughs> I'm you. very surprised to hear a scientist make such a confident and controversial prediction as, as Dr Pagel made. Um, it, it clearly goes against... Many of the trends of globalization, in which there's a great enhancement of local initiatives, local language, local customs. I mean, in the media, the great the great uh, explosion of uh, languages, language services in India, for example, has been in the regional languages, and it continues to go down into the subregional languages within the states, the minority languages. There's, a, there's an inevitable process, I think, of, of using the technology that we have today to counter these supposed biological evolutionary trends. I don't think it's inevitable. I think English language certainly will change. I think the English language can probably look after itself. Shakespeare spelt himself very differently to the way that we do today. And uh, I don't think it presents really any problem. Uh, we, we don't need to worry about how people may understand Shakespeare in, in another 300 years' times because of the spelling of it. That's not the question. So I do think I, I, do, I do think that there is a very strong localizing influence in the unifying and globalizing influences of the cultural influences of the world today.
5: Uh, yeah, yeah. So the gentleman here who asked about English, um, actually, the opposite is going to happen. I mean. So 200 years ago, and 100 years ago, English was spreading around the world. And I mean, I speak differently from many of you. Australians speak differently yet. Local English speakers speak differently yet. And that's because we weren't very mobile. We got to a place and we stayed there. It was hard to get out. But the world's changed. I mean, not only are we traveling all over the world, but workers are traveling all over the world. Laborers are traveling all over the world. The great European experiment is to get Everybody to travel everywhere. And it is simply inevitable in those circumstances that you don't get fractionating, you get get homogenizing. And so just today, the BBC ran a big article about all of the Americanisms that are slipping into the English English language, and at the same time the Americans are running articles in the New Yorker decrying all the Englishisms that are slipping into the American English language. It's just happening and it's happening because Americans listen to the BBC and people in this country listen to Friends and American sitcoms and other awful things. So this is just happening. Now the inevitability I talk about is that if you look at the language diversity around the world, and again don't take this as me advocating this. This, I'm widely misunderstood on this point. If you look at the situation around the world today, 7,000 languages or so spoken around the world, the future for languages is mass extinction. I mean there are more languages going extinct every year, somewhere on the order of 30 to 50 languages going extinct per year. So as a proportion of the total linguistic diversity the loss of linguistic diversity greatly uh, exceeds the loss of biological diversity from species extinction. Now, you're being told by biologists correctly that we are going through a mass extinction of biological species that is roughly equivalent to something called the Permian extinction. I think it was about 300 million years ago, when about 90% of all life on Earth, the diversity of life, went extinct. Languages are experiencing something worse than that at the moment. Now, the very fact that I can tell you that in this year, 30 to 50 languages will go extinct should, should astonish you and shock you because normally evolutionary processes, we can't see them happening. But this one's happening so rapidly that in your lifetime, the linguistic diversity of the world is going to change noticeably. And what's happening is, it, it, doesn't, it, isn't, you know, it, isn't, it isn't rocket science to know that what's happening is that all the minority languages that are spoken by a very small number of people are falling off the bottom of this long chain of languages. And every time they fall off the bottom, the people who speak them don't die, they start speaking other languages, right? It's just that those languages are no longer being taught to, we often say, the the children, but it's that the children don't want, in many cases, to learn those languages because it consigns them to a narrow, sort of economic role. They want to learn the dominant language, the spoken right next door. Now, again, this is not a value judgment. I'm saying this just happens. And as these things fall off the end, what happens? Well, the majority languages receive more and more speakers and this process will just over who knows how long, I don't know if it's going to be one hundred years or two hundred years, is going to unwind and it's going to take a long time before there's one language on earth and who knows maybe there's going to be three languages or four, but who cares there's seven thousand now but the trend is for an enormous loss of linguistic diversity and whether we like that or not it's just happening And and we're, you know, we, we hear that there are forces that oppose this, and there are folks forces that oppose this, and good for them. But these forces are all rather nationalistic in their focus. So Uzbekistan pops up, Tajikistan pops up, and so on. And they all want their local native language as an expression of nationality. But it's just a matter of time before those languages will start to be gobbled up for the same reasons that all the other minority ones are. Now the lady's question an extraordinarily good one and and yeah I mean should you teach your your child um, Irish or Gaelic whatever you want to call it well of course you should and you know, wh- why not but my question or my my statement was about compulsion and a lot of people on earth are being compelled to learn languages and but what I would say you know a little bit like Moses you know being put into the basket because somebody thought Moses needed to have a really good life if you could teach your child one language in any language, you know, you'd have to make a difficult decision. Would it be your own language if that was a minority language that you were speaking, or would it be a majority language that perhaps lived next door? And I think these are difficult choices that people have to make. But in the case of, you know, families rearing their children, of course you want to teach them about your culture and history and so on. But you have to ask yourself, while you're doing that, whose interest is that in, when you're doing that? Is it actually in your child's interest, or is it in your interest to do that? And In many instances, it might be in your child's interest to drop them in Moses' basket. And I'm saying, obviously, it's not this simple, but have them learn something that will really expand their worldview, rather than restrict it. I don't suggest that's true in your case, but you can imagine cases on Earth where that would be true.
1: If I could maybe use my, my chair's prerogative before we would come back to the floor and, and add, contribute a, a historian's perspective to this, and I would suggest that in some ways, sometimes languages will actually contribute to the creation of an identity that it was not necessarily there beforehand. I spend a lot of time in Scotland. These days, an awful lot of places in Scotland will have place names or signs in two languages, in, in Gaelic and in English. Historically speaking, it is only in the Highlands where um, people spoke Gaelic, yet the Scottish, um, the current Scottish administration, which has a nationalist agenda, is encouraging this use and introducing um, Gaelic into places that historically never were Gaelic-speaking. Um, so, in, in in some ways, um, I suppose we, we can push the identity question even further than, than Mark was taking it in, in evolutionary terms. Um, I just wanted to throw that in. But we've got a question over there.
4: If multilingualism is falling in the UK, it's because of power, not because of theories of evolutionary biology. And why? That is to say, it seems you're all agreed that multilingualism is actually good. And apparently it protects you against
0: Alzheimer's. Uh, So why is it falling? in in the UK? I.e. why is there a very clear movement from a source of power
4: to eradicate multilingualism in the UK? Okay,
7: we
1: have a a question, just the the lady in front of you, if you want to, thank you.
8: I'm rather taken aback uh, by the lack of use of the word politics except the last speaker in the first session, in the introdu- introductory sessions. The, the, when China came under the control of uh, communist government in 1948, one of the major ag- items on the agenda was language. Various languages were spoken in that vast country, and they needed, the, most of them were illiterate, could not read and therefore it was necessary to broadcast well if you like uh, the, you know uh, the propaganda or whatever instructions etc cetera, etc cetera. so therefore they needed to unify the language in standard Chinese and that was a main thing that the, the, that was a great deal of effort was made to unify the language and now uh, 70 80 years on they they all speak, the standard Chinese. That's one, one aspect of opposite of what happened after the fall of um, Soviet Union, where the last speaker mentioned about uh, Tajikistan, uh, the, uh, uh, the 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 various CIS countries that their languages are being now spoken. Dito uh, in Estonia, uh, the Latvia, and etc. etc. And um, I I, I what, what do you think uh, of the uh, politics? I would like a bit more emphasis on, on your idea Ex- expand. I'd like you to in- expand uh, about the po- po- power politics versus language and that will be exactly the case with Americans and British uh, being able to dominate the world with the, what you call linga franca thank you would you like to contribute?
9: The lady earlier on mentioned signposts and signs in bad English. I don't think we should worry about that. Um, some many years ago in West Africa, I was purchased a small pamphlet. It was badly printed, and there were lots of spelling mistakes and so on in this in a country with, which had 40 languages and English as a lingua franca. And i mentioned this to a danish friend who was teaching the printing and he put me in my place and said think how much better this is than nothing at all that these people can all communicate with one another by this means it might not be perfect but it is A means of communication. Also, like to talk about the cultural hegemony, hegemony, which we've mentioned here on the on the screen behind us and in the in the title. Uh, Speaker on the end there mentioned Moses in his basket. We know about this because of the export of this huge company in the in Rome, (laughs) and by some people who moved from a little part of Asia Minor into into Rome. And it is part of a culture that most of us know about and uh, we can understand what he's talking about. Uh, Does this culture necessarily go with the movement of language from place to place and the growth of a language as a world language?
1: Right, okay, so we have a number of points. There's the point of power and politics and its role in this, the issue of oral versus um, written cultures, traditions, languages, the, the the issue of that are non-evolutionary, um, and, of course, the, the, the issue of communication as well. If I could ask the, the panellists to address whichever points they wish to pick up on, Dr. Paul, Yeah, just like a,
4: to picking up the politics side of it i'd just like to throw into this uh, argument by the indian historian ramchandra guha who argues that the western european model by which language has become the basis of nation and language has been a source of perennial conflict uh, uh, in previous generations in india he argues that uh, although uh, the, the political system of India has to some extent been broken up, has to a great extent been reformed and refashioned since independence along the lines of languages. He argues uh, uh, that um, language has actually proved to be overall a unifying a unifying uh, element in, in such a large country. Um, unlike in Pakistan Next Door, where the attempt by the West Pakistanis to promote Urdu as a national language over the heads of uh, the East Pakistanis who spoke Bengali proved to be disastrous to the state, uh, the Indians have pursued a different policy, and the language can be a unifying policy. So I think that this, uh, these are important, uh, important elements in the way in which language politics is conducted in different countries, that, which will determine
2: its future. Thank you. I was struck by that um, question about why is there no multilingualism in in the UK, which which you made, and I'm beginning to wonder if maybe we're not approaching this in the best possible way. How about this? How about Britain is an incredibly multilingual society, but where we see something changing, and we might be tempted to describe it as some um, sort of a shift towards monolingualism, is actually a white phenomenon. What if this is sort of the what one might sort of see sort of the traditional Caucasian um, population of, of Britain? Because when we look at the reality of of Britain. Today in, in the Southeast, well, there is an incredible amount of people who speak more than one language. But those don't seem to be the languages that we tend to have in mind when we talk about multilingualism. They don't learn French, they don't learn German, they don't learn Italian, except they do t- up to GCSE level. And then, so if it somehow disappears, it's no longer encouraged to, to be used in, in universities. And then you have these encounters um, that mark um, referred to so sort if of, you yeah, have let me just outperform you in english before you uh, <laughs> um, um, work up a sweat um, speaking speaking another language but what if what we're actually trying to describe is britain no longer focuses on traditional european language but actually even the phenomenon of multilingualism in this country is changing and that's a reflection of how this society is changing just sort of thought it's not really a re- response I'm not even sure if I'm making making a strong point here just sort of something that that occurs to me are we what, what actually are we talking about because the multilingualism is the reality mm-hmm. actually but it's a different multilingualism than maybe we're used to experience.
1: Mark, did
2: you?
5: Um, yeah, I, I think we can sort of unify these these questions. They're all really good questions. I mean, the question here about, you know, I, I have this very narrow view of what happiness is. Yeah, I probably do. I think it's probably one that I share with a very large number of people on earth because you can see that there are a small number of countries around the world that are besieged with people who want to get into them. And you live in one of them, most of you, I presume. Um, I come many, many years ago from another one. Um, China is one at the moment that people are flocking to. India, people flock to places where there are opportunities. Now, yeah, perhaps that's a value judgment. And I don't suggest that that's the only way one can be happy. But it does seem that many, many people do flock to places where they think they have really solid economic opportunities. But you're quite right. One might be just deliriously happy. And sometimes I think I would be sitting next to Walden Pond writing philosophy and not worrying about the rest of the world. Now, the next point, the gentleman's point about um, why are we becoming less and less multilingual, well, I think it's just really obvious. People are just making choices about what language to speak. It's really obvious, and we just shouldn't shy away from this, and we shouldn't think this is a value judgment. And it's nothing to do with biology. It's got everything to do with the fact that, well, it's got one tiny little thing to do with biology that's just so trivial that, you know, I shouldn't even have to tell you, and I don't, which is that We're just a highly evolved species like everyone else on, every other species on Earth, and our brains are highly evolved to make decisions that serve our well-being, and most of us do a really good job of that. Some of us don't, we end up in jail, we kill people, or we fall off cliffs or something, but most of us do an extraordinarily good job at what is an extraordinarily difficult thing to do, something that's so difficult that our best scientists can't get the best robots even to walk down a flight of stairs okay so we're extraordinarily adapted to do things that serve us and so I think most people living in a society like this without even knowing it are dragged towards speaking the majority language. Now I don't know if that was your point but but that's why it's happening, it's just really obvious and then the lady's point about China, I don't know enough about, although I'm interested in that period of Chinese history, but I think what the Chinese government did, I think you told us was it enforced this kind of linguistic homogeneity and it served the government really well to do that. You know, whether people liked it or not, it served the government really well to, to, to do that. And So you had one of the points, I can't remember what it was after that, um, oh yeah, about Tajikistan and so on. So what was happening with with the Soviet Union, of course, is that those, those people were being forced to speak Russian. And I can remember many, many years ago, before the Berlin Wall came down, traveling to Potsdam, and um, my German's pretty Bad and people recognize that in Potsdam, so they started speaking to me in Russian. Right? Because the, the people who lived in the east side of Germany had been forced to learn and it made sense to them to learn Russian. Also well, the Tajiks and the Uzbeks and so on, they probably all speak Russian, I don't know, i bet they do. But as soon as that power went away, they asserted their sort of nationalism and were speaking their old languages. and. I'm not at all surprised at that. Uh, The only point I was making was that that, that's a short-term policy that will serve them very, very well, it'll strengthen them for nationhood, but I'm simply saying that over the very long term, these majority languages, whether we like it or not, are going to encroach and nibble away at the edges, just as is happening in this country with people who don't speak English as their first language, they're just surrounded by English all the time, and that is encroaching and nibbling away at their brains in what they speak. And so many people who arrive in this country as, as first-generation non-native English speakers, their children are effectively native English speakers and the native language of their parents is their second language. And it's just, it just happens. And Whether we like that or not, and again I'm not putting value judgment on that, or making some biological statement, it just happens. Um, and then they can't spell Macchiato correctly. <laughs> So don't take them to
2: Italy.
3: Uh, <laughs> no, actually, I mean, I mean I, I'm yeah. completely tolerant, yeah. you know. Don't take just
2: them to Dolce Vita. No, don't <laughs> take them
1: to Dolce Vita. <laughs> yeah. Peter, you had a...
2: I was wondering if I could ask you a question, um, Mark. Um, I mean, one of the things that we experience when dealing with biology and sort of evolution in our daily lives is obviously the notion of um, we have to preserve biodiversity. I mean, isn't that essentially the same kind of compulsory interference with evolution that you actually yeah. argued against when it came... Yeah, no,
5: this is a really good question. Now, does everybody understand the question? So, Peter's saying that that I was saying that, that it's bad to lose linguistic diversity. Um, uh, sorry, what was I saying? I was saying we don't, it doesn't <laughs> matter if we lose linguistic diversity because we're not losing styles of thought, but that it's bad to lose biological diversity. and. The thing is that different biological organisms retain very different genes that do very, very different things. So organisms that are very different from humans, so not including chimpanzees, other great apes, but organisms that are very different from humans have are repositories of gen- genes, genetic information that nobody's ever thought of creating except evolution by natural selection over the last three billion years. and so, We think that there's a lot of valuable stuff out there that we, as humans, can exploit on this earth. Now, that's going to prove to be an open question, but the answer does seem to be that probably is correct, that that's true. So one reason for preserving biological diversity is because we want to mine it in our greedy way. Now, you can just reach your own conclusion about that, but that, that it is true that there is something there to mine. The point I was making with linguistic diversity is that different languages do not preserve different ways of thinking. And I think it's patronizing to suggest that they do. And I don't want to lose languages any more than anybody else does, but we shouldn't worry that we're somehow going to lose unique styles of thought and we won't be able to do good science or write good poetry because we we lose these languages, as sad as it might be to lose them. They just do not determine the way you think. And to think any other way is not only to be muddled, but I would suggest to be very patronizing to people who have different languages
1: to you. Daniela is getting fidgety. No, no,
3: no, I was just uh, questioning in my mind the idea, I mean, the, the no. well, the, the use that you make of the word homogeneity uh, when applied to a linguistic context in the sense that you suggest at some point, I mean, I entirely take the point that uh, language, uh, language is like any other thing in, in the world that in some languages are because of the paucity of speakers and because in some cases, as uh, my, uh, my friend there um, suggested, they are not written down, then they are more doomed than others to extinction. and. I just defend, from a humanistic point of view, uh, the, the the right to mourn uh, the loss, uh, because in the same way as I regret the thin thinning of the biosphere, I regret the thinning of the ethnosphere. Um, homogeneity is the right word to define what is actually happening. That are that there are um, a few. I mean. A number of uh, dominating languages, as opposed to other minority languages, I, I don't think so because it suggests that at some point we will <laughs> these languages will meld into one. And as a matter of fact, they will evolve. Uh, they will change, in, uh, and English is uh, is a case in point. So, and yes, to to address the point raised by uh, by the lady in, the, in in the floor, yes, a language is, uh, uh, I mean the dominating language is a language with an army and uh, the case that you you know that you explained about chinese is in fact uh, a very good one but it's also as you, uh, as you as we all know a case that has not been a successful one at all because lots of <laughs> in china lots of, of people of ethnic groups uh, still defend their right to speak uh, a language other than cantonese and mandarin and to I mean, uh, whether we like it or not, people still are very attached about, about you know, to their language and or dialect. Uh, and it's just sad when, you know, uh, <laughs> the last syllables, you know, spelled in the years of children and it's not going to happen anymore. I think that that is probably a
1: a very good point to end on. I'm I'm aware that we probably could have gone on for a long time longer. Um, That's not good English, but you know what I mean. Um, For now, I just want to thank our speakers and the audience obviously for coming along. Thank you all very much personally and on behalf of, of everyone who is here.